To comment on this broadcast, share your experiences on the Valpo schools, or reach out to Allies Against Racism. Send an email to contact at alliesagainstracism.org. That email is contact at alliesagainstracism.org. Hello, you are listening to Val POC Plus. Val POC Plus was started after a series of interviews with a diverse group of Valparaiso High School students. And from these interviews, many of which aired on WVLP radio, um, we learned of some issues that affect students in the Valparaiso community school system um, and the experiences of Valparaiso High School students in particular. Uh, issues included anti-black racism, um, anti-feminism, uh, religious discrimination, and so on. Uh, in this show, we hope to inform you, the listener, of the significance of these issues, what they mean for Valparaiso's youth. Uh, in today's episode, we will be listening specifically to stories of anti-black racism in Valparaiso High School. Um, I'm one of the two hosts of this program. I am Timothy Leitsky. I'm the Reverend Timothy Leitsky. Some of you know me as. I'm the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church here in Valparaiso. And my co-host is... Noor Arfin. I'm a senior at Valparaiso High School. And you are listening to ValPOC Plus on recorded at WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso or online at anchor.fm slash ValPOC Plus. That's a plus sign, not the word plus. And you can find our Instagram and our Facebook accounts linked at our anchor page. And as I said, our, our topic for today is anti-black racism, racism anti-black racist incidents at Valparaiso High School. And our guest today is Alex Clanton. Uh, my name is Alex Clanton. I'm a sophomore at Ivy Tech at the Valparaiso campus, and I'm excited to be here today. The way this show is going to work is we're going to we're going to talk with Alex about what what goes on, but we have some clips that did not air on the original show when when it was on on WVLP, and so the first clip we're going to listen to um, we'll just we'll just dive into it. It's about a minute long, um, and then we'll we'll talk about this incident afterwards. What goes on in the hallways? Do you hear racial comments in the hallways? I think. Yeah. I would say I would say yes. I definitely hear words that you're not white people are definitely not supposed to use. I'm not gonna say the word. But what's it start with? The N. Yeah, okay. Um and it's it's used in such a way that makes me really angry. Um and I just kinda hear it sometimes passing by. I hear that a lot. I always just hear little comments like, I don't want to say it, it makes me so sad. In what context? What's the context? It's just like in like a mean, like like demeaning way, like people are always trying to bring other people down. And just especially at Valpo, like, just like, I always hear like white people trying to bring like black people down, like just like little comments that are just... Mm -hmm. Or any minority of that Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm try- I can't think of a specific example, but no question. No, no <clears throat> question. I bet all of us here have heard that. So when I, I listened to that clip the first time, it, what's really struck me is um, the way the student could not think of an actual incident. And the 
they knew there were incidents, but they couldn't think of one. And I, I know we always hear, I always hear people say they want to hear the stories. Maybe the stories will change people's minds. And, and we're here telling stories. But these, these folks couldn't think of any, but were very much aware of the reality. Like they, they knew it had happened. And Alex, I'm wondering if, if you can, can speak to that. Do you have a story that you would tell or is it more of a cumulative thing or is there is it even like a, a defense mechanism where you just after a while you just stop listening you know what happens but you try not to remember them yeah so there are many experiences where i dealt with you know my white peers using that word either in a comical tone or you know in a more derogatory tone as well um and my me myself personally i actually accepted those around me that used to say that because in a sense it was defense mechanism. I had to accept that people were going to use that word in order for me to have friends and survive in a, in a school system where there are other people who share the same values that I do. So it was, it was tough. It was something that now that I look back at, it's difficult that, or it's, it stinks that I can look back at myself and say, you know, why, why did I let that happen you know so it's it's a tough word to deal with because it's something that for so long was used against people who look like me i find the coping mechanism aspect of that interesting because it makes me wonder if students of color in the schools experience so much discrimination that their mind immediately puts up a barrier to these stories. It's just like bury it and move on because there's no easy way to deal with it that, you know, you can't undo what happened. So I think that it might be students experience these kinds of things so often. Uh, there, you know, there's a couple different uh, coping mechanisms that people use and it really stings because I mean, for example, in the clip that we listened to, the person who had heard or experienced this type of behavior was a, was not a black person. You know, and that can attest to, you know, some of the things that black people face that a lot of times either they're afraid to come out and kind of share their stories because either people are going to not believe them or say that they're exaggerating or there's other reasons why they don't really come forward with their experiences. And that's what really stinks because if you don't have the person who faces those experiences when it's specifically against them, then it's difficult for other people to kind of understand and reason with why they're feeling that way. One of the things I know that the speaker said that white people using a word they have no business using. And the the N word is one that you know we, we all know we're not supposed to say, but but um, clearly there are there are folks who th think they can, and and white folks who think they can, and um, actually, Nor you had you had mentioned in uh, ideas that Tanahisi Coates uses an analogy for why you shouldn't use the N word uh, if you are white, and do you want to? Share that with us. Yeah. So for context, um, Dani Hisikotes, who is a really famous author, um, was speaking before this really large audience of students. And one particular student asked how they should deal with their white peers using the N-word in songs when they hear it on the radio. Um, 
Coates responded by giving this really interesting analogy. So he says his wife refers to him as honey, but if he was walking down the street and some random woman called him honey, that would not be appropriate. Obviously, he has no relationship with this woman. And he goes on to explain that when you're white in America, you're often taught that everything belongs to you or that you have a right to everything. He says you're conditioned this way. It's not because your hair is a texture or your skin is light. It's a fact that the laws and the culture tell you this. You have a right to go where you want to go, to do what you want, be however. And people just got to accommodate themselves to you. Yeah. Do you experience that when you were in high school, Alex? I um, I definitely did. Um, I mean, it was kind of uh, an experience that a lot of white students wanted to experience, using that word. I mean, we can think you, of... You mean, you mean they, they want, it was like a coming of age thing when a white man finally says the N-word? <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. it, you know, okay. maybe like party games or something like that, you know, where someone could say it. It was, it was used in a very comical sense, but it was very offensive at the same time. I mean... Even when it came to reading To Kill a Mockingbird in school, it was very, it was very interesting to see the amount of students that actually rose their hands to read for the pages that had the N-word on it. Kids that had never read a page in the book and they were raising their hand because they're like, I get to say the word. And, you know, at some point, eventually our teacher was the one who eventually was the one reading the book. And it comes to this issue of like, you know, it's literature, so you have to, you know, read it. But at a certain point, it's like there's a reason why we're reading this book. And it's not to say that word for everybody. It's to share about the issues in the book. I think a lot of people argue that the purpose of having the N-word in literature is to recreate the setting of that era. But at one point, at what point does that become useless when students are weaponizing that word and recreating the hurt of that era, not the historical context, we're if not, that makes yeah, sense? We're not, we're not trying to reenact. We're trying right. to, or at least we're not supposed to be. But this idea that, that, that the students can own you, I mean, in, in the clip, we have a, a student who is not black talking about hearing the use of the N-word and... and that designed to bring down people of color. And, you know, the story here of reading To Kill a Mockingbird, it's like students are lining up for their opportunity to bring down the, the students of color in the classroom. Um, are there other instances of that that you can think of? Or is this yet another one of these where it's, I've, I've just at some point stopped keeping track of it. I, it was too much. Yeah. Um, well, I can think of it especially when it comes to other races as well um i can remember an, uh, an instance in which a student we were learning about uh asian americans in history class and a person decided to imitate what they had thought a, a a chinese accent was and it was very humiliating to the te our teacher who's actually chinese american so that was a very very that moment has been like ingrained in my mind because i'm just like you know, why would a person even think to say something like that? You know, and at the time I laughed because I was uncomfortable, you know, because you kind of have to, you, you have to fall into the group because everyone was laughing. One of my, I can't say anything because if I do, who knows what's going to come back to me, yeah. you know, and 
that's something that's also ingrained. It's like now I'm in a different point in my life where I will, I will say something if I see something like that. I will say something or I will leave the conversation because I'm not giving that any more attention than it needs. What's, what's the difference between then and now? It's only been a couple of years, but I mean, I know in a, in a young person's life, that seems like an eternity, but what's, what's the difference between then and now that you would, now you would say, you know what, I'm not going to try to use that defense mechanism. Um, I think, you know, that personal growth that everyone goes through, especially after high school, high school is definitely a place for me personally. I was a very involved student, you know, student council, uh, national honor society. I was in so many different clubs and so many different community groups. And at a certain point it was me trying to uphold my image and I wouldn't allow myself to really state how I feel. And especially now because of COVID, I think a lot of people have had a lot of time to look at themselves. And I think that's led, especially me, to become more in tone with my emotions. And I think that's where my emotional growth has really come from. Because when it comes down to it, racism, in order to battle it, it's really having to show compassion for others when you have not gone through what they have gone through. That's the biggest step towards understanding what racism is. Not not defeating it, not solving what racism is, but just even understanding what it is. I'm wondering, Nora, I don't, and this, we're interviewing Alex, but if this is, you know, we were talking about this defense mechanism, um, the experience of there and being in, in high school, what, what are the, and you, Alex, of course, can answer this too, but what are the sorts of things that you're, concerned will come back on you that, you know, like, I don't want to speak up. What is it that you perceive would come back on you? Or do you feel comfortable sharing that? Well, I think there is a good answer for that, but I also think this goes very well with our, our next topic. But before, before we move on to it, um, at one point we mentioned how Throughout the interview with these high school students, they slowly started re-remembering more and more um, specific stories and experiences. And as we're sitting here discussing, um, that's also kind of happening to me, actually. And I remember in a a science class, um, there was a student who was um, BIPOC and he was eating a snack and lunch and the person sitting next to me asked, where's his watermelon and fried chicken? I'm surprised he didn't bring watermelon and fried chicken. And those kinds of comments were a norm for their group. And you know, you, you ask why, what is some of the concern we have about this coming back on us? Students who recognize that's wrong, like that's so very wrong, are in the minority at the high school. There's a difference between ignoring racist behaviors and actively being anti-racist. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you, but, you, but to hear what you're saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, it's that you know you are in the minority if you identify this, that you will be, you, you will be in the minority uh, opinion about this matter. If you speak up, you know the majority of the students will be against it. 
the way to go about this kind of these kinds of comments is you talk about it once you say oh that's not okay once and then you don't keep bringing it up because if you keep bringing it up you're making it a problem Alex do you think that's kind of I mean I've I've been sitting with white peers where sometimes I'll I'll look around to see their reactions to something and it'll be really cavalier like they might seem annoyed for a couple of seconds or a little weirded out like an ounce of disapproval and then they'll continue going about their day that's it yeah i um i had very few friends who were very passionate and really strong-willed enough to say something about it but um the others i mean they were either just like me afraid or just didn't care didn't think it was important enough and in reality Little by little, no matter if it's a little microaggression, like saying something, well, I say little, but a microaggression, you know, those build upon each other. And eventually, you know, that can really hurt someone. I mean, for me personally, my self-esteem in high school was at a very, very low point. I mean, when I left high school, I was at a point where I was almost 300 pounds, 300 pounds plus, you know. And I had a very poor mindset of myself. When I went to school, I hung out with friends who were very, very damaging to me because of the fact that I had no self-esteem, no positive view of myself because of the things that I had faced in Valpo, feeling like I was worthless, feeling like I was nothing but a, um, a black and Latino character that can be used in order to show the light of Valpo. Oh, well, there's no racism because look, there's a black Latino student who's student council president, you know, and that's the only reason why he's student council president is because of the fact that he is a double minority. And um, those kind of things, they, they do hurt, you know, and it, what hurts more is those around you, your peers that don't really say anything about it. That's the biggest hurt of them all. <laughs> Nor you mentioned, you mentioned that I was getting ahead of us and was, I had a really good segue into something. I'm wondering, I think it might be time to move on to that next clip. Um, so we have a story here. This is about an almost three minutes story um, about an incident that happened one morning at Valparaiso High School. It was in a class that I'm in, but I didn't, I didn't witness it happen, but I did see like what happened right after. And there is a girl in that class who's African-American and it was first hour. So we were saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And there was a girl next to her that I don't personally know very well at all, but she's white. And it was made very clear that what she said was not in a joking matter at all. And they were saying the Pledge of Allegiance and um, it was at the end for liberty and justice for all. And the girl, the white girl said, for all except black people. Like, turned to the girl and was like, except black people. And I watched her, like, leave, leave the classroom. Mm -hmm. And at the time, nobody knew why she left the classroom because, like, nobody else heard it. You heard it? I didn't hear it. Yeah. She, she, she like deliberately like looked at her and was like mm -hmm. said it just so that she could hear it yeah and 
nobody know why she left the classroom because she was the only person that heard it, but um, I watched her leave the classroom and I watched her come back in and um, she talked to the teacher. The teacher was like, the teacher told her like, we need to like report that to administration like immediately, like there's nothing that I can do directly right here right now except send her to the office. And so they moved her seat so that she didn't sit next to that specific person anymore. She brought it to the administration's attention. I don't know exactly who, but it, they never had a meeting. Like they never called her back in. They never said anything to her. They never interviewed her? No. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, the girl who what? said it was never punished in any way. Wow. And you hear like the drama of like who broke up with who, but like that's the first time I'm hearing of something like that. And I feel like that's the like, kind of stuff that like kids should know about. Like, like I, like, I had no idea about that. And like, I'm sure like you guys probably didn't know about like the lunchroom thing. Like, and like, I'm sure everybody has like all these different stories, but like that, like, that like makes me ashamed like of my school and like yeah. the place I'm from mm -hmm. like that all of that is there and then every like our school just covers it up I I don't think that's what I want to be seen as so I I listened to this story the first time I, I hear this and I, I try to put myself in the position of the teacher who wants to get on with their day and learns that this thing has happened. And they're hoping that a disciplinary system will handle this. But I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher in the high school and I'm not a student in the high school. It's been a long time since, I've been 25 years since I was a high school student. Um, are there things that, this, that teachers can do in the classroom that are not being done is kind of the, the first question I would have. And then of course there's, there's just the the raw nature of this clip makes me angry, but that's the, sort of the first question I have is, are there things that could be done that aren't being done in the classroom? Not even, hold off on the discipline point for a moment, but. Um, for me personally, I, I don't think so. And I think in the, in the sense that if teachers were to do anything about this or try to change the attitude in any way, they, they themselves could be faced with disciplinary measures because unfortunately, I say unfortunately, but I think personally, I would have really loved to experience going to VHS during the, the rise of the 2020 Black Lives Matters movement. Um, I just, I think that would have been amazing to experience what was going on at VHS when that was happening. Um, of course, students were in lockdown and stuff like that. It was kind of a mixture of both. So there probably wasn't much experience, but you know, it would have been an interesting topic to talk about. But f when I was in school, we didn't have, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement that's originally started in 2016, it wasn't really anything that gained a lot of traction, especially here, but it was something that if teachers would have stood up and said something or, you know, tried to change the narrative or tried to make a narrative about it, they would have been faced with disciplinary actions. I mean, there was a teacher, an art teacher who had been fired or asked to resign just for attending a, um, I believe the 
movement was like the school shooting movement, the one where the students had March walked for, out. March for our March lives. March for our lives, yes. There was a art teacher who had been forced to resign because he had attended that during his break. So he was allowed to attend, but he had been forced to resign because it was something that Valpo did not want any person or faculty to be a part of. And that was upsetting to the art students who would really love that teacher because he was uh, he was a pretty awesome person. But I mean, it was especially a loss for Valpo as well. So there's, there's a sense, I mean, I hear from you and I hear from them that, the, and, and it sounds like probably for the, for the teachers as well, that there's, there, there's a higher authority that they can't transgress. And, and that's what they don't dare mess with. I've tried. I, um, my senior year was when a club had come, come to student council because we were in charge of uh, letting clubs kind of get together and start. And it was the, uh, remind me, the Student Association. Yes. So um, they had come to me and they had asked, you know, whether or not they could start. And I was like, why not? Like, that's an awesome club to have in our school to kind of unite all the Muslim students. And um, the school had denied it without giving reason why. I mean, they had given a couple reasons why. The superintendent had sat me down, talked to me, so had other faculty and stuff like that. Sorry, just the first time I'm hearing this. First, yeah. So I, I this, yeah. Nor, Nor's kind of laughing because this is a, a group you're a part of. Yeah, I mean, this well, is, I'm the president. Yeah. I started an essay, <laughs> and I found out about some of the drama, apparently just the top layer of drama that went behind getting the club approved after it had been approved. Because I got a letter back a couple weeks saying the club's approved. And then I heard that there were some adults involved in student council who had opposed it and some conflicts and admin about whether this club could be approved or not. I also had some student council students come to me say, as a Catholic, you know, this is blasphemous, so I can't participate, which... Um, which I was not aware of, because if I was aware of that, I would have kicked them out of student council. <laughs> so it just seems like there's, you know... And, and, and I'm not, I'm Lutheran, I'm not Roman Catholic, but that's also wrong. I, I, I can no, guarantee yeah. you that is not something that, they, <laughs> that well, is a point of yeah, faith in Whatever people are comfortable with, I understand, but, I mean, it was just the first day I had my first MSA meeting and I'm finding out that there were waves, huge waves with adults, 40, 50 year old people about letting Muslim teenagers meet once a week to discuss their lives. When there are already two Christian clubs or, um, yeah, already two Christian clubs that meet as well. Um, and that was something that I had fought about. Like I said, I had sat down with the superintendent who is no longer here as I'm hearing, which, <laughs> and, um, other faculty as well. And, you know, that really made my experience in high school horrible because it was a point where I was like, I'm going to stand up for these students because they have a right to meet just like every other student has a right to meet. And, you know, they had said, oh, well, why not just make a club of all faiths? And I'm like, so let's disband the other two clubs then and if you want to do a club like that we can do that but you're not going to allow two other clubs meet and not allow the muslim students association meet as well so i mean meeting head on with uh, administration is a difficult task 
if not very detrimental to not only faculty, but students as well. And you, you run up there against you run up there against a movement in this country to make sure that there are Christian clubs in public schools to the detriment of any other faith tradition being present when, when you do that. Um, that is not, that's not something that I agree with doing, but that is something that is a very powerful movement. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso or online at anchor.fm slash Valpo, Valpoc plus. You can find our Instagram and Facebook accounts linked at our Anchor page. Today, I'm sitting here with... Pastor Tim Leitsky, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Valparaiso. And Alex Clanson, a student at Ivy Tech Community College. And you are... And I am Noor Arfin. I'm a senior at Valparaiso High School. We've been talking about an incident that, that involved the Pledge of Allegiance and a calling to disciplinarian. And I'm sorry. Did you have a question you wanted to ask? I, I was just going to continue. I mean, you you go, were getting no, there. No, you should go. You do it. You do it. Let's pause and you, you lead us in. So one interesting point Alex brought up was that the high school administration really wanted a club that wasn't specific to any certain ethnicity, religion, etc. And hopefully it's fine that I'm talking about this, but the school used to have a stand club, which is a socially together, naturally diverse club. Years ago, this was a great club with a lot of students that I think was doing great work. After a while, it became something that the administration asks teachers to sponsor rather than students coming to the administration requesting for a club. Usually clubs work the latter way. Students want to make something, so they fill out a form. But with this club, we see the administration sponsoring it. And I think the reason they do that is so they can tell other clubs like MSA, like, you know, Black Students Union, we don't need to create your club. We already have an all-inclusive umbrella club that we cherry-pick and teachers to lead. Yeah, it's because we've thrown this this shotgun approach at it. We've already included everybody, so we clearly don't need, you don't need your own space because you have one, except, as you're saying, you're not actually invited into it or part of it. They've just decided there's this umbrella thing that that you fall into. We were talking about an incident that happened with the, the Pledge of Allegiance and a, a, a teacher um, re, uh, resorting to asking for discipline against a student for, for this incident. And Alex, I know you've shared that you were the president of the student government at one point. And I know you have a story of when you were asked to intervene for, in this sort of racially biased, motivated disciplinary moment. And I was wondering if you could share that with us here now yeah so um it was my senior year and with all new uh administration not all new but a lot of brand new administration and also guidance counselors and stuff like that they were kind of looking for some students to kind of help them out as they transition into the school system and of course i was happy to help i was raising my hand like yes i'd love to help the administration it was really right before i really 
kind of felt a distaste in the administration. But there were some students, uh, two younger black women, who had faced some discrimination. There were students who were using the N-word against them. And for me personally, I had experienced stuff like that before. Um, And the administration had called me down and asked if I can help them solve a situation. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to help solve a situation. The two girls come down as well. And they sit us in a room with the two girls, me and a guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor asked me, he's like, so these two young women right here uh, were called the N word and were called other distasteful things as well. You know, what are ways that they can deal with that situation? So instead of the students who were using those actions, instead of them facing disciplinary consequences, the students who had received the, that treatment were instead asked, what can they do about their behavior in order to change and to be okay in this environment? And I think it's I think that's a very interesting point because that's something that in my race class when I was at Bloomington, that's something that we talked about was, you know, especially when it comes to systems of change, it's always the people who are being oppressed or asked what can they do in order to appease the people, the oppressors, in order to be good enough to be equal. And that's kind of like what that sense was, like what can the girls do in order to not be called those things. And that's not fair treatment at all. And at the time, I was actually giving them advice on how to deal with it. And if I could go back and turn the turn the wheels of time, I would say, do you know what? If they say those things to you, you take it to the school system and you take it to the city board and you do what you need to to let people know that that type of behavior is not okay. So, And you, you were sucked into that as well. It was, it was, we're going to blame their behavior for why they were called these things. And now we're going to bring in another person of color to do the dirty work of explaining how to behave like a white person to, yeah. or to pass as a white person. And you had n- no idea that that's what was happening to you at the time, but that's totally what that setup was. Yeah. And, uh, it actually took, um, uh, Roxanne Johnson, who's a a very prominent person in the community, it took her to explain it to me, like what the situation really was. And that was something to, to this day, I still feel guilt about. I don't remember the name of the students who I had told, um, that information to, but you know, I, I am constantly on Instagram or Snapchat trying to see if I can find them on there so I can let them know, Hey, you know, I apologize about, what I said, because that is totally inappropriate behavior for, first of all, faculty and administration to do, you know, to have a student be blamed for actions against them, but also to have another student come in and try to explain that to them as well. I find that that lack of sensitivity and awareness um, to be a huge problem in the middle schools, especially when I was in middle school, I was also called down to the guidance room with my guidance counselor and the school officer because... The school officer is a police officer? Police okay, officer. Yeah. Because for an entire year of my middle school education, I was having conflicts with a white peer who would use the N-word all the time and would also 
say a lot of inappropriate things about immigrants and she would relate it to her support of Donald Trump. And it was kind of hard to believe that, you know, I was being called down to the office to explain why I wasn't comfortable with allowing her to use the N-word. And some of the adults that were in that room used that word in that conversation. They didn't even try to censor it. They used that word. And they were like, well, what context was she using it in? Well, what's the culture of today? Why do you feel this way? At one point, the conversation went to international politics. Oh, well, what do you know about the bombings in Syria and whether or not people should be saying this about these immigrant groups? I was (laughs) in middle school, and I was speaking to people well above 45 about this. So, like, it's, yeah, it's just... And, and your discomfort, you were, you were being upset that this derogatory term was being used. You, you were asked to somehow couch it in terms of the civil war in Syria and, and somehow that that justified somebody here saying that. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that, that's a tactic we use when we don't really want to deal with something. We just need to talk for a few minutes to fill the time and then we're going to throw you out. I just start rattling off things we know about. Um, <laughs> that's, that's awful. It's it's a conversation I face way too many times. And I know a lot of other BIPOC students do as well. Um, the That constant, uh, I don't want to say, well, yeah, gaslighting. The constant gaslighting that's going on. There's adults who, instead of trying to understand and engage in the conversation that's happening, they bring up other things that the student, you know, either doesn't understand at that level. Because, I mean, in high school, there were things I didn't quite understand either. And these adults were trying to tell me the way that the world works. And I'm like, well, then shouldn't you be teaching me this? <laughs> you know, or something like that. And it's really upsetting because it, 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 they, what they want to do really is scare the student into not saying anything. And that's not a way to engage a conversation. It's not a way to deal with children and teens and young adults. It's just not an appropriate way to deal with that at all. Engage in the conversation and uh, have a compassionate understanding is what needs to happen. And unfortunately, that's not happening. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've been told that I'm stirring the pot or sticking my finger in a flame after reporting racist comments made by teachers. And it impedes students' educational abilities. How can you be expected to focus and thrive in a classroom where, A, you have peers who don't really stand up for you the way they should, and B, you have teachers who have such little compassion and willingness to just listen to the students they're teaching? It makes it hard to be the student you should be. Yeah, I know. I'm speaking as the white person on this interview, and and of course speaking 25 years ago and in a different state, um, going to high school in West Virginia, um, this was at a time when um, we had daily or, or once a week there was non-sectarian prayer around the flagpole outside. I remember you could gather around, which I was, as a Lutheran, we have a very you know 
spotty history with this. We always oppose blending of church and state, but then a whole bunch of Lutherans in Germany did it in the 30s and they were fine with it. And so it's always a touchy subject for us. And so when this is going on outside, I got my hackles up, but you know, in the course of a school day, we always had the Pledge of Allegiance. And if you put your hand over your heart, but had just one finger sticking out and or just sat through the thing, no, nobody cared if you were a white student. And the high school that I went to w- was integrated. Um, it, it was probably representative of the general population. It was most, at the time, it was mostly white, but that's where we had black students in the, my classes. We had students of, of different uh, backgrounds in the class, and we had students who were immigrants, first generation in the class. Um, I, as the white kid, never faced any backlash for flipping off the flag as a high school student or just not get not standing up for the pledge because I didn't feel like it as a high school student. If either of you doesn't stand for the pledge in school, what happens to you? It's a statement for sure. It would definitely be a statement, something that um, our fellow white students probably wouldn't experience as much. And I think I'm interested in hearing, especially how, because the Black Lives Matter movement really hit its height during the summer. So when you came back from the fall, there was probably still a lot of um, effects of that, you know, in school. Did you go online or were you? So I was online, but I know people were aware of it in school. So I can't speak too much to what exactly people were saying or doing, but from sitting in on classes virtually and talking to friends who were going there, I thought that there was a lot of tension in the school, and especially around January. And I also think that there were a lot of people who were angry in the school for different reasons. But I, I honestly can't give you that much detail as to what, you know, was happening in that fall. I could just imagine, you know, a BIPOC student just one day just trying to sit down during the Pledge of Allegiance. Maybe it's they're trying to finish homework. Maybe they're just feeling tired or sick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden it's a huge statement, especially during a time when, you know, the January 6th, um, insurrection and Black Lives Matter movement, like when those things are happening, I just, it, there'd be more than just the N-word probably being stated at that point in time, definitely. Yeah. And for for clarity, white students, not all white students always stand for the pledge. Like sometimes people will just be doing homework or, you know, for whatever reason, they just won't, they just won't stand up. But like, Alex said, if a black indigenous or student of color were to do that, they'd automatically be attached to this image of being outspoken, even though you're silent, of being aggressive, radical. Even though you're just sitting. Right. And making a political statement, even though you're clearly trying to finish your homework before the teacher comes around for it. And... and yeah, it's, it's the way in which that BIPOC students are held to a different standard or a higher standard. You know, it's like it's and I know many things have changed in the 25 years since I finished high school, but it's, this is not 
<laughs> this is the same as it, as it was when I was there. Um, that yeah, I, there, there were there were rules that were simply not enforced in my case, but they would be enforced for students of color. And you know, that there's cer certain way to how do you respect the flag? I get a free pass because I stand out even in the middle of the night when there's a new moon, but others don't. Um, and, and it's not too hard to figure out why. Alex, earlier you mentioned that as, um, you know, student council president and, you know, just being involved in a lot of leadership positions at the school, you couldn't really speak your mind about the racial culture and what was happening. Would you agree that, oh, I think you would, that that's because you can't really detach yourselves from your socio-political beliefs, beliefs as a student of color, whereas white students can? Uh, definitely. I, um, yeah. As a black student, I think there's like, there's like two ways that people either see me super far liberal left um, or super far conservative right. And I mean, it's even prevalent in the adult world as well. I mean, uh, in the HRC, when I was a part of it, you know, there was a, a member who was conservative and black. And I remember other adults saying, hey, you know, he's on here because he's conservative and black, you know. And I mean, it was it was nice to have that point of view. But it was also like, you know, when it comes to black people or BIPOC, um, they're kind of viewed as in those two ways. And um, of course, there's one way that I'm more of now than I was before. Um, but in order to try to fit into that, I had to centralize myself. And, you know, there are things that I said or I did that I don't, didn't really believe in, you know, and also a uh, home life. Uh, I have a Hispanic mother and my stepfather is white. So, and it's been that way since I was about three or four. So I'm not really that in touch with my black family or my black side as well, even though I do see that as a big part of my life as well as my Latino life, but um, kind of went on a tangent but <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, it's it's difficult to differentiate between that because people, like I said, either see you one of two ways, you know, and if if you try to stray away from those, you can probably get far into it unless you're really pushing for either side. You're either a social justice warrior, super fighter or you're a super conservative uh, anti BLM, everything like that. Well, we have one other clip we wanted to listen to today with you, um, and this uh, has to do with, with the way our story of, of America is taught in our schools. I think that, like, kids need to be, like, taught this stuff, like, early on. Because, like, I feel like, especially with, like, history, like, we're taught, like, oh, like, like, slavery was ended, and then Martin Luther King Jr., and then there's no more racism. But it's like we're not like shown like these cases of like modern day like we I think we need to be shown that because like I, I don't it's just I don't think, yeah I don't think that kids understand <clears throat> and like we need to be shown like other cases where like like such as like uh, like World War Two when like 
like Chinese people were literally like, or Japanese, I mean, were like literally put in like camps because like they were scared of them. And like, we're not shown these things throughout history. And like, you need to have that in the history classes. You need to show that, especially like modern day cases because we're not, like we're just shown that everything's perfect now. And like, I like, like, I don't know if that would work, but like personally, I think that that would be really impactful to me if I were taught that in class, like early on. So I, I first heard this, I thought, well, nothing's changed in 25 years. Uh, this is exactly how I was taught by omission of crucial facts. We have this narrative, everything's awesome. What, what are you taught in high school? And in all, you know, throughout your school career, what are you taught about America? Um, what are we taught about, especially about about race in America? Well, I think I'll start with the positive sort of side to that answer. That in some of the classes at the high school, students are taught about modern systems of oppression. Keyword: some of the classes. And that is because those teachers are thankfully proactive about, you know, being historically accurate in what they're teaching. However, majority of the classes r really just teach slavery, Civil War, Rosa Parks, maybe Jim Crow, that's it. And red, like, I, I didn't even learn about redlining in my history class which is insane because it's a history class. Yeah, redlining is something I didn't learn about until I was out of school. And that, and somebody had to explain it to me. Once they explained it, oh, that, that actually makes a whole lot of sense now, why things are set up the way they are. But yeah, uh, the idea that you would have neighborhoods where no, where, where realtors are simply not going to place people there unless they are white, or they're only going to place black folks in this area and we're actually going to make that our policy and, and you know, in order to, to to protect housing prices is always how it's couched if you're not familiar with redlining um, but that's you know that that's that was never taught to me either um, so that's a positive thing now you said you said some of the classes are is this is this just teacher by teacher is it the more advanced classes deal with these things or really is it just it's luck of who you drew as your instructor my experience was well, it's it's kind of it's weird because um, the advanced classes can teach about structural racism. In fact, the AP U.S. History class awards students a point on their final examination in their essays for having complexity in their answers and viewpoints. Complexity can very well be understanding race history and post-Jim Crow era history. Does that mean that the advanced classes teach any of this stuff? No, they don't. They really don't. It's, it's horrible. It's very, very, very little effort made to teach about this stuff. Even Native American history is very slim. Yeah. But the teachers I do know who are proactive about this, um, they're in the normal, like, normal history classes. They're, those are the ones they're teaching. And I think that's a very important point you bring up, too, about the advanced 
placement courses because, you know, the curriculum for those courses, you know, they did try to involve some more history, but didn't really shed a lot of light onto it. Um, and I'm, my guess is, you know, my sister is actually in high school right now and she's going to be a sophomore this year. And um, my, you know, my guess is, is that as the advancement class, advanced placement classes were going on, the non-advanced placement classes were learning even less about the history because they were going at a slower p- pace. And the fact that we were learning so much but so little can only make me realize that the regular class was only learning just basic whitewash history, you know, something that is often too much taught in our schools. And even LGBTQ plus history as well, you know, that plays a huge part in the BIPOC community. I mean, a lot of black queer and Latinx queer people as well, they really made the LGBTQ community what it is today. And we can thank a lot of them for that. But it was a one day, probably about half the class we learned, we had a little section, LGBTQ plus community. You know, uh, they mentioned Stonewall, didn't really say what it was. You know, people thought stones were thrown at a wall or something like that. Stonewall Jackson (laughs) somehow was involved. So it was something that I actually brought it up um, to my history teacher. And I said, how come we are literally passing by a section of America that really is a huge part of America? You know, that's a huge part of even the uh, BIPOC community. And, you know, well, we just don't have time for it. It's not a big part of our curriculum. Well, I mean, it's a big part of history when it comes to the HIV and AIDS pandemic and all these other things that affected so many Americans. So We watched movies, at least three movies in my AP U.S. history class, maybe two. And you know those days where your teacher just puts on a movie and leans back? Like, that, that's what it was. So they really can't be saying we don't have enough time for it because if they wanted to, they would teach it. And it's, it's even for AP classes, it's not enough to say we move at such a fast pace. There's something that, that I take away from what we've talked about today. It's that you have instances of racism in our school system still, despite the fact that we're taught uh, by omission that this all ended uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um, these instances are overt and covert, and sometimes they're a combination of both. <laughs> like they're, they're very direct acts that are aimed at someone, but done in such a way that, that no one else can hear about them. But they do happen, and they affect the people to whom they happen, uh, and, and they affect the people around them. Our, um, our metric, our way, our, our threshold of measuring when something is a racist act in, in our society tends to be something that is very overt and oft, often with a threat of violence attached to it. Um, that's a topic for another time to ask what, what's the deal with that uh, designation. Um, but if you see here in, in the stories that we've shared and what we've talked about with Alex, um, racism exists even when you don't have things like that going on. And it exists in very overt ways uh, that intimidate people. Alex, thank you for being with us. Is there anything you want to share as we come near the end of our time? Yeah, so uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on today. It was a really great experience uh, for our listeners. Um, you know, really reach out to those around you, you know, your BIPOC uh, friends, family, 
because, I mean, these situations that are going on, either if they've forgotten or they've tried to hide them as well, the feelings that they've uh, received from them, it's important to try to listen and understand what they're going through. You know, not to listen to respond, to let them know, well, you know, the experiences you've had are different than what they've had because experiences are different for everyone and that's okay. No experience is going to be the same between everybody. But if you listen to understand and share compassion with those around you and share, show compassion with BIPOC people as well, you know, um, they're it's a step for a step further in kind of understanding these racist systems that we have uh, in our society today. Yeah. So to wrap up, this is Noor Arfin. I'm here with Tim Lightsky and Alex Clanton. In today's episode, we discuss the prevalence of the use of the N word in the schools, a black student's experience with overt discrimination in the classroom, and the lack of historical and social accuracy in what we are learning. These stories provide some insight into the reality of life in Valpo as a black student or a student of color, but they are far from the full picture. So we invite you, the listener, to take action. You can join the local Allies Against Racism group, which has over 100 members. You can also share your own experience or story of discrimination through the Advisory Human Relation Council's anonymous form on their Facebook page. And finally, you can continue to tune into this show to gain a better understanding of our youth in Valpo, the issues they face, and why their stories matter. This has been Val POC Plus, recorded at WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. To comment on this broadcast, share your experiences on the Valpo schools, or reach out to Allies Against Racism. Send an email to contact at alliesagainstracism.org. That email is contact at alliesagainstracism.org.